This podcast is aimed at the veteran community. It hopes to recreate a conversation taking place in any NAFI anywhere in the world right now. We want to combat social isolation by letting veterans feel part of this conversation. If you are easily offended, please switch off now. And if you want to see more, please subscribe to this channel and be part of the community. Uh, evening people, this is podcast number 8, uh, Veterans in Crisis. Today, we've been lucky enough to get Kevin Ball, which to me is just absolutely brilliant. Uh, he's a hero of mine, uh, he's, you know, the things he does for Sunderland as a city, not just for a football club, is just amazing. So, nice to meet you, you Kevin, too, thank you very much for you coming too. in. Pleasure, thank you. I mean, I don't know if people know that you're the patron of uh, Vicks. Uh, you jumped out of the chance when I asked you, I mean, how does it feel being a parent for Vix? I think when you ask me, it's an honour. I think from my own point of view, um, years and years and years ago, obviously I was very fortunate to go into football, um, left home at 16, obviously my career was in football, still is and that. But what I'd always wanted to have done if I hadn't gone into football, would have had to go, I would have gone in the armed forces, there's no two ways about it. I'd have had to do something like that because that's the sort of character I was. Now, over the course of my time, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed my career and, and you know, I've met plenty of serving personnel and, and veterans, that, you know, that, that are finished with the army or the, the forces, etc. So when you said to me at the time, right, do you fancy it? I, I took it upon as an honour, an cool. absolute honour. Nice. I mean, we, if you come over and you were nice enough to do a talk in the Gunners Club to the um, to the clients and... Uh, Obviously, we needed a parent, and I, I spoke to the clients. This was weeks after you'd been, and I was like, who do you think we should get? And it was, everyone says, try and get Kevin to date, try and get Kevin to date. Do you, do you know? know what? I really, really enjoyed the times I've come over, and we went over there for that, is when you sit and you listen to the lads talk, and, and obviously, and I can talk for England, by the way, <laughs> but sometimes I like listening to them, and I like seeing them counsel and look after each other. And I like listening to what, they have to say listening to whether it's an experience of theirs or whether it's something they want to share and i some and i want to also tell them I, i'll be there to help them you know if they want to share something with me i'd listen to them i'd talk to them because i might want to share something with them and they might look at me and go well i didn't realize you were like that or i didn't realize that and they'd be quite surprised but i think the biggest thing i found was how open they were and the reason I think they're open is they were so comfortable in the environment mm. you created. And by doing that, to be able to go somewhere where they feel comfortable, for me, is paramount. Because I think if they were going in there and they were hesitant, they wouldn't enjoy it. But you could see they really looked forward to seeing each other and talking to each mm. other. It's, it's crazy because that the, the people in there had never met before. Oh, now, when I go. tell people that, they can't believe the, the bond that they've got. Well, I'll be honest with you then, I would say the same. Because when I walked in there... It came across really that they probably have all served together, they'd all grown up together, and they all knew each other. Mm. Now, if that's the case, and again, credit to yourselves because when I went in there, it literally looked like I just said they'd grown up together and served together, mm. and we're all back there together. But if they're all from different not walks of life, but different personnel from different services and different eras, fair play because you've created the right atmosphere for them to go and feel comfortable. Yeah, well, that's what we wanted. I mean, when you come over, we spoke about a few different things, but. One of the things when you were telling sort of your story, what I noticed was that there's a lot of similarities with between footballers and serving people, uh, veterans, because would have been like a sort of a team camaraderie, the crap with the lads, and then when you finish playing, 
you know, it's a bit like finishing the army. But it's interesting you say that because when I look back to when I left home and that's probably when you feel the most isolated when I left home. I left home at 16. Um, I actually read a letter in my loft the other day and I won't go into detail. Are <laughs> you sure? It, it was a lot of letter to me, missus, but I will right. say one bit. At least it wasn't a day, John. No, but I oh, know. But do you know what was quite interesting? And I was only 16 and I actually read the part I read was um, that I hated it at Coventry. Um, they won't let you do what you want. Um, everything you do is never good enough. And... We have to always be told we need to work harder. Now, it's weird, but at the time, I hated that. Hated that, But technically, that's been my mantra all my career, is you need to work as hard as you can to possibly get where you need to get. Um, and so I'm doing all that, and I'm wanting to leave it. Right? I'm thinking, I've had enough. I'm 16. I've had enough leaving home. So like some of the lads, probably when they first leave home, that first few months must be horrendous for some not all because some might actually embrace it and get away and thank god for that i'm not saying everybody from i would have said a lot of them and i found it really really difficult like intensely difficult and when i tell people that they look at me as if to say really and i go well yeah but they go yeah but you've had a great career in the game and i go yeah but we all have to start somewhere and sometimes it's a case of like it's not always easy now so when i go back to camaraderie i still speak to people now from when i was an apprentice at coventry city the captain of the apprentices at the time, the, the youth team, was a lad called Greg Abbott. I spoke to him today. Uh-huh. Now, we still laugh about those times because I was an idiot. I was a skinhead, quite, not aloof, I wouldn't say that was a word, but distant, sometimes didn't embrace it enough, didn't realise it enough, and didn't understand to be part of a team enough and to work at wanting to, to achieve something. And I remember they all wanted to stove me head in once because I'd been <laughs> a pain in the arse. And I think I was game for the fight at the time with uh, Greg, but then he brought about six of the other lads with him. And I thought, well, maybe not like that, you know. But they taught me a big lesson. But one of the best things that ever taught me about team plan, how one thing can affect everybody, was our youth team manager, John Sillett. Now, when I tell the young players this, they look at me like I'm, and I can't believe it. And I used to escape from Coventry. I would tell the Diggs people, uh, they'd say, right, you're not going home this weekend. And I'd go, okay, then know that. I, I went. And bearing in mind, Coventry's three and a half, four hours by train to Hastings. I would leave the Diggs at five o'clock after the first thing. I'd run to the station, get the first train to London, run, get across London, get a train across, get a train down to Hastings. I could be there by nine o'clock, up to nine. I'd be back on the train the next morning at six o'clock to get back to the digs just in case he turned up and caught me out. Now, how stupid is that? <laughs> but I used to do all these sort of things, right? And one day he caught me and he pulled me in the office and said, I need to have a word with you. I went, what's that? He said, you go on the weekend and like you do as a young person, no. And in the end, like I had no choice but to cough. And I went, yeah, I did like that. He said, okay. He said, because of your actions, he went, um, all the lads are going to lose their weekend at home next weekend. And I was, excuse me, I've got an itchy ear and I better itch it now in case of, right. I was mortified. And he went, no, you have to understand the actions of one can affect the team. And I've never forgot that. And that might not have yeah. been the words he used, but what I did gather from it straight away, there's the way I behaved could have such a far reaching effect on the rest of the lads. And if my discipline wasn't good enough, it would have an effect on them. And it did. And I actually stood there in front of John Sillett, shaking with fear, not because I thought he was going to do anything to me, but more so because... I'd let the other team down, the other teammates down, I'd let me mates down, and I kept thinking, how am I going to face them? And that was a massive learning curve for me. Now, I'm not saying that I didn't still escape sometimes. I probably did, if I'm honest, like. Um, but I've never forgot it. Now, obviously, as time wore on then, 
bearing in mind I had been captain of all the teams I played and I think what it was I was not outside my comfort zone but I think it, I was just a bit frightened if I'm honest now once I actually realised the harder I worked as an apprentice the more chance I had of playing then even when I got released from Coventry and I went back to uh, Hastings for a month I went to Portsmouth I never stopped working to try and become a footballer but I also valued everybody in my, t my team loved it we, I mean I've been very fortunate over the years been captain of the majority of teams I've played in but I had some great teammates. So when you look at all of that, and I'll then fast forward to when I finished playing, and I was nearly 38, and all of a sudden, all that camaraderie you've had, all that togetherness, all that like, knowing they're always there for you. And don't get me wrong, we used to have scraps in training, I'd be the first to be in there, and all sorts. But then you go on, John Kay was one of my best ever mates when I was at Sunderland. We knocked about together socially as well as at work and that. We nearly had a fight in training, and the funniest bit ever was driving home in the car with him afterwards, and he wouldn't speak to us, and I wouldn't <laughs> speak to him, and we had to drive from uh, Sunderland to Burnmore, and we were literally around the corner. I went, do you think we should just start talking? He went, yeah, all right then. I went, right. What time am I picking you up tomorrow? He went, no, I went, I right, see you tomorrow. <laughs> now, what I'm saying is that was a sort of camera I had, but I always know he had my back and I had his back. But like I said, when it came to finishing, I think I spent about four or five months with the family trying to be if I'm honest normal trying to sort of put the family first because yes the families always do well after you know or during your football career with all the, the you know the trappings they can come along with that but they also put up with a lot of stress as well and you know I mean, going to that with the injuries I've had and that but I felt it was the right time to spend a bit of time with the family um I also hurt me back quite bad so that literally did finish my career um my wife, I love what she says, we went to uh, Cyprus for about two weeks or a week, whatever it was, we half term with the kids, and she said, oh, she said you were lovely. She said you were so nice. She went, I'll be perfectly honest with you, she said, when you finish football, she went, that's the loveliest you've ever been. And she said, when you went back into it, she said you become a twat again. <laughs> right. I don't know, like that. But I enjoyed that. But I think one of the most fortunate things for me was not allowing that to go on too long. Because if I'd have started needing to look and needing to see where can, not where can I become important again, where can I be part of something again, I might have struggled. And I was lucky that uh, Leslie Callahan rang me to say Al Wilkinson was going to ring me one night, he, and he did, and that meant in the March I joined the club again. So I've been very fortunate and that I've then gone back into an environment which I thrive on and I enjoy. If I hadn't have had that, I wonder. So I can quite understand where when you've been part of the armed forces of any nature and you have that togetherness and yeah, there's always parts no different to my career when I first started where you're a little bit distant, you're not quite sure. Then once you get it and you become part of something and, you know, and let's face it, I've been involved in relegation fights, cup finals, playoff finals, winning trophies, all sorts of different things. It's amazing how much you become to depend on your teammates, how much you want to spend time with them. And I can remember I, and we won the championship with the 105 points and understandably the wife wants to go out and celebrate as well. No, we did have two children. Well, I've got two children. They were younger at the time. And I remember saying, all right, you've had your bit. I want to go out with the lads now because I need to be with mm. them. I can remember coming home you know, in relegation. It's not that my wife didn't know how to talk to me about it, but I need to be with my mates because they would understand it. And yeah, don't get me wrong, we might have an argument, we might have a fight, but we'd have a pint. But it's just something about that togetherness that's created that if you're susceptible to that sort of 
life. And when it stops, all of a sudden it's like, what do I do now? Mm. And I know for a fact Quinny, I believe, is working very, very hard. I don't know if he's still doing that. I did read an article about him. Of that tra transition from not playing, uh, sorry, playing to not playing, how do we handle it as ex-players you know, and what can we do to help them? And I think it's not only the, the mental side they need to be careful, it's the physical side as well because footballers nowadays are honed athletes like you wouldn't believe. And all of a sudden they do what they probably couldn't do before and that's maybe why all of a sudden they, be, they may become addicted to things because in the past it would have been controlled a lot more and they couldn't do it where now they might go well it's down to me and I will do it mm. and it's a very sticky time and I think the PFA as a whole it's vital that they handle that transition for players as well as what they can I think the same goes with the armed forces because there's very little transition or good transition I mean, they'll tell you, people will tell you there is, but there isn't, especially if you do less than six years so you don't really get any sort of transition, any sort of courses or anything like that. You know, you just, someone once said it was like the loneliest he ever felt was when he drove through the gates for the last time, you know, and you, you find like people, they come back, if they joined when they were young, they come back a bit old, when they're older, then you've got sort of, your friends have moved on, they've got families, you end mm. up. You know, what do you do? You end up getting a flat sitting in there by yourself. Wait, see, see what you're saying there. I could quite understand that. Um, the difference, I suppose, when I finished my career and was it like walking out the gates from my last club, I remember driving home, and if I'm honest, at the time, quite grateful as well because I'd done a lot of travelling and I needed, and I, I knew I was at the end of my career, but I did have a family to go home to. Now, some lads that have, of maybe giving up their life, really. When you, say, you know, whatever period of time it is, it is their life because they become, in doctrine, but ingrained into a way of life that becomes important to them. And when that's all of a sudden changed, it's hard to deal with. So when you were to come out of somewhere like yourselves did, out of um, you know, any base of whatever it is, that must have been absolutely frightening for them, not knowing maybe what they're going to do, where they're going to go. Whereas for ourselves. And I was lucky I had my family to go home to and, and and probably, if I'm brutally honest, in a financial position to allow myself a bit of time mm. to actually reflect on my career, spend time with my family, then plan what I was going to do next. Whereas a lot of the boys won't have that. Um, I would have said that's probably when the majority of people are the most susceptible to anything because they're now thinking, what do I do next? Unless they can get help with getting a plan in place to say, well, look, this is what's on offer for you. Now, when it's on offer for them, it's up to them to go and embrace it and take it. If they choose not to, it's probably going to be difficult because trying to get somebody to do something they don't really want to do is the hardest mm. thing ever. But like I said, we're fortunate in the sense of the PFA, they do it to a lot of players. Like you've said, who served for a long period of time. But there's also a lot of young players out there that might go through, um, you know, like become a YT. Even um, my own son, you know, he left the club at 20. Did I see a change in him? Yeah, I think I did. And now he might spit, sit and speak to you and I might have got it all wrong because he could only be the one that would answer But I would imagine that was a difficult time for him. Mm, but it was. So right? lots and lots of similarities between what we do in the sense of together with other people in a team. And, and me, like I said, I love it. I really do. Mm. So do you think, I mean, it, it must be hard when you've had a great career and then it's finished. Yeah. But what do you think, see a 17, 18 year old, you know, when they just get released? Not not injured or anything, you're just like, you know, sort of been trying since they were nine, seven, nine, 
up to and then they get released when they're 18 and you know and that's been their whole life i mean th- their mental health must suffer as well, well i've got. experienced that in abundance over the years as you know whether i was the under 18 or under 21 coach and my thing had always been is to make sure or try to make sure whoever it is has that support i still speak to lads now you know i i, I still have contact with lads that probably have done things they shouldn't do but I still see him as one of our lads like yeah. that, you know. Don't get me wrong, don't go and go, oh, what you're doing is great. I might say to him, listen, I'm not sure you should be doing that. At the end of the day, that's your choice type thing. When they get to 17, 18, and the hardest ones are the ones you've known have had a right go at it, but they're just short. They're just not quite good enough. And they, you have to sit them in the office and they look at you and giving them that bad news to say, look, and my thing was always at this moment in time. I never say you're not. Yeah. I always say at this moment in time, we feel that you're not going to get a cut and then give you reasons why please whatever they do you should always give them reasons why but then when you give them reasons why also give them something to grab hold of too now they might well call the office and think you're the biggest wanker alive because of it and i'd quite understand that you will get some that see it as a release the relief some lads actually go thank god for that i want to go and do something else mm. and there'll be lads that are distraught i think what it is is making sure that each and every one of them no matter what the answer to it is whether they are or aren't getting a contract is to know that you're there for them and I've always said that to any of them. I said, listen, my phone is always there for you. If you choose to, if you need to, ring it. I went, I'll come and see you. Not a problem. If it's something I can help with, let me know. If I can't help you, I'll find someone that can. I think as a club, it's of paramount importance we do that to all our players, mm. no matter what age, whether it's a senior player, young player, or one of our pre-academy players. It's important that they know that support is all there, always there for them. And I'd like to think as an academy... There may have been times we may have fell short, but in the main, that's been there for him. But yeah, I would imagine being told that. Now, I can go back to when I was told by Dave Sexton um, I wasn't getting a contract. Now, bearing in mind my youth team manager had actually said, you're getting a contract. I went to see Dave Sexton who told me I wasn't getting a contract. So you imagine that, I'm thinking, well, fucking am I, ain't I? And then it finds out that I've been, the youth team manager had chose to say, because it changed, it was now a bloke called Colin Dobson, I wasn't getting a contract. Now, in Colin's defence at the time, I thought he was a twat because, you know, not giving me a contract. When I look back, actually it was probably the best decision he made for my career because, one, when Dave Sexton said that to me, I just thought, fucking great, I'll go and get my gear and go, am I allowed to swear? Yeah, of course you can. Um, I thought, great, I'll go and get my bags and piss off home now. And I did. And I wasn't bothered when he said it. I can remember what he was saying to me, oh, we haven't got enough money to offer you a contract. You know, which I learned over the years gone by, which is code for son, you know, isn't it fucking good enough type thing. Mm. But he was very polite and very nice about it. I couldn't wait to get my gear and go home. Now, I was only at home a month before I thought, right, now, screw your head on. I went through a lot of, uh, what's the word you would look for? Not soul searching, that's not the word, but I found it very difficult when I went away for home. Really exceptionally difficult. But once a penny dropped, and I suppose I looked back and the old man was the one that done that when he, I went home at the Christmas saying I'm not going back and he just looked at me and went, we'll see about that. If he had said to me, okay, come home, I probably wouldn't be sat in now with you. But him saying to me, we'll see about that, we had an argument. You, Christmas wasn't what it should have been, but I ended up going back. And I did screw my head on a little bit, but I think it was actually that experience of going to Coventry, leaving Coventry, me thinking, hold up, you've always wanted to be a footballer. This is what you've always wanted to do, and all of a sudden you're going to throw it away. I got the opportunity to go to Portsmouth, and I never looked back. But that was a time where, at Coventry, I probably didn't work hard enough. 
but I made sure I did at Portsmouth. So like I said, that that first period they go away from home is really difficult for them. Being told they're not getting a contract, it, it can work abundantly well for some because they might explore another avenue yeah. of their life. You know, I've actually told players, I said, what do, you, what do you want to do? They've said to me, I don't want to be a footballer. I actually had one who came in, every attribute going, every attribute going, but not the edge to be a footballer. And that sounds weird, doesn't it? You can be physically, yeah. technically, tactically, mentally, whatever you want it is, but there was an edge that we was missing. So maybe the mental side wasn't quite right for him to understand to become a footballer like anybody else, to be successful in the armed force, whatever it is, you have to work intensely hard at what you do. There was something missing from his game. However, he was academically very bright. So we sort of came to an agreement between us and nobody else really knew this. I went, look, this is what's going to happen. I says, Daddy, your dad's got a very successful business. I said, one day you need to take that over, don't you? I went, yeah, yeah. I went, so why don't you, while you're in the academy, I says, work hard at what you're doing, you know, work hard in training. You'll be playing games sometimes, some not. I went, but gear yourself so you do all your academic academical work ready for if you do leave, you can go straight and start running your dad's business. And he done that. Now, I was delighted because he ends up he's running his dad's business now. And I played him on his 18th birthday enough against Leeds and I took him off at half time because he was still struggling then, I'll be honest <laughs> like. But I stuck to my promise and said I'd play him in that. The only thing when I did go to see him, he went to me. Do you remember what he said to me? Yeah, he says, I regret not working hard enough. Now, when he said that to me, I could have punched him on the nose there and then. Because I thought, no, what you've achieved is what you knew you could. He would never become a footballer. Mm. Now, he might have said to me, well, I could have done if I worked harder. No. You know, it it's, it's would have been, could have been, should have been. It, it wasn't the case. What he should be saying is that he made the right decision. And his decision was to go and do what he's doing now. And he's got a massively long life, hopefully, doing it and becoming very successful and good on him as well. Mm. I've even had one come to me and said he didn't like playing football. So well, what do you like then? He said, I like musical instruments. Now, I was in a difficult scenario here because his dad worked for the FA and I'm thinking, oh, no. and I was captain of the couple. What do I do now <laughs> like that? I actually said, well, like, go and tell your dad and tell him. I said, I'll support you. And he was in a wide tier of So we're talking 20, over 20 years ago, I suppose. And he'd done that. Now, whatever his career was in there, I don't know. But he left and he was happy. So... Not everybody is geared to be a footballer. I think what is important, though, that if it isn't that case, that we make sure the avenues they go down are right for them. And as an academy, you know, with Don Petty runs it now, the education department, like Brian Buddle did for the years I was, you know, sort of in the academy as coaching, was excellent. Now, Brian was a top, top bloke, but a grumpy old bastard at times. But he was grumpy because he knew the importance of the lads getting their qualifications, where me, I'll be going, yeah, is it played bloody football, not do that. Yeah. But Brian was a stickler, stickler, for making sure they got their qualifications. And there's many a person all over the world that should be very grateful for Brian Buddle's input in their life because he was the one that drove them on, on the educational side. Now we come to agreement, me and Brian, I knew how important it was. And the lads came to me once and said, we don't want to do the education no more like that they've got right on all of them so they sat there and told me that I went so none of you want to do the education no more they went no I went you better pack your bags in. and they looked at me what do you mean well, I said none of you can play football anymore then I said because that comes with it I said because not all of you are going to make footballers but all of you can make some account of your life if you do that side as well and that was the last we ever heard that I never had any <laughs> mutiny again like you know so with Brian doing that and, and currently Don if we are in that position where we do release them the care's there for them 
But what we'd like to think is we've prepared them for that in the sense of if they stay in football, there'll be somewhere else that might fancy them, might say, yeah, you're for us. If they want to go down the education route, that, that'll be an avenue for them. We've got a lot of lads who have gone to colleges in America. We've got one, Richard Smith, and I'll talk about Richard because he was very, very good mates with our Luke. Um, top, top lad, Richard. Six foot seven, and as you do, we called him small. But lovely lad. And he used to come in with my Luke. I used to pick him up around the corner on the way in. And I loved Richard. The nicest lad you'd ever wish to meet. Excellent footballer. And when it came to, excuse me, I should be burping on camera, I should I? Um, I just had a curry just now. My yeah. wife made a beautiful was it, one. Was it nice, eh? It was nice. Like Halloween curry. Yeah, it was actually. <laughs> yeah, it was bloody lovely. Um, so with Richard, he came to the end of his uh, scholarship and I thought he was an excellent footballer and myself, Jed and Elliot sat there and we we're all talking about what we do next as a pro. Now I wanted to give him a pro because I saw a footballer in him. To what level and what degree would only be, really, to, to whatever chance he got as well. But the overriding thing was he was academically ridiculously bright, like off the scale. Like, and, you know, and he could do his football and he could do his academic work and he would do more. That's how good he was. And I'd always been asked by one of my mates, John Kerr, who was head of football at Harvard, if we ever had a player that was off the scale bright, didn't get a scholarship, uh, sorry, didn't get a pro that could come to America to let him know. Now, bearing in mind I'd known John for lots of years when I was coaching, Richard was the first one, really, if I'm honest, that met that criteria, that one you could actually say, yeah. So I rang John, told him about Richard, put him in touch, and I step away from it after that because obviously I don't want to be the one in the middle. It's up to mm. them to sort of anyhow. So Richard C goes to Harvard, um, and then... Sorry, so Richard was now looking to go to Harvard and then Rich, uh, John left Harvard to go to uh, Dukes, I think it was. I think it was Dukes University, whatever it is. And he wanted to take Richard with him, but Richard had now got a sniff of Harvard <coughs> and he went, no, I'm not going. So Richard stayed at Harvard. And in the last couple of years, he graduated. Now, I'm not sure how this actually works. So if I get it wrong and anybody's watching this and they think that's all wrong, <laughs> you can kick me in the nuts. But what I am told is that he's meant to be... <coughs> one of the top graduated orthopaedic surgeons or something out of Harvard, whatever he is, right. you know, I've, I've got that title wrong, Richard, you can stove me head in or try anyhow. Um, he's done it. Now, that for me itself would give me equally as much pleasure and the club would do as seeing the likes of Jordan Pickford and Jordan Henderson playing mm. for England. And it was funny how the world's a very small place because a couple of years, no, not even that, about a year ago, I went into my docket at work and found a letter. So it was a letter and it's from the top orthopaedic trauma surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital. Now his name, believe it or not, was Richard Smith. So I'm reading this letter thinking, why is he writing to me? So then I goes down the letter a bit further and it sort of transpires that Richard had been sent, along with um, a lad, believe it or not, a medic out of the Special Forces, to go to the hospital to work in the trauma department where this bloke was the head of. And he went, he said, when this young gentleman came into my office, he said, he sat down and unbeknown to me, he said, oh, uh, I like your shirt, because this Richard Smith, believe it or not, both Richard Smiths had a Sunderland shirt behind him at his desk. He went, oh, I like your shirt. And this Richard Smith, why is that the surgeon? He went, oh, he used to play for him. Then they got talking about me, Sunderland and all stuff like that. So it just made it a really small world, but a great world. So when I see Richard 
doing that, like I said, it gives us as much pleasure as any of them. Mm-hmm. But then I'd also say, those that are in trouble and need a bit of help, would we see them any less? No, absolutely not. Would we be able to go out of our way to welcome if we're good? Absolutely. Now, the difficulty being there, they need to reach out to us at times. We need to be aware of them, but they need to reach out to us to say, I need a bit of help. Now, would I be the first to go and see them? Absolutely, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. don't care. Would go out my way all the time because they're part of our club and I think we have a responsibility for that because sometimes when they don't achieve what they want, it can be the hardest thing to ever come over because they feel a failure. And it can be heartbreak. Yeah, really, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Talking about uh, the two Jordans, though, I mean, yeah. what fairy tale stuff that really, isn't it? Fairy tale stuff. It's absolutely, I mean, I just showed you the t- the tops downstairs. What the both sign out. We've got uh, framed in that. Think, Obviously, next to yours. Yeah, yeah, my top <laughs> just over above this. Um, I think what it is with the pair of them, the the ability was always there for them to become footballers. They need to have that platform to perform on, and they were very fortunate, not necessarily to have maybe the staff or the office, but I also think of the support of their teammates. And one of the stories I like to tell about is about Jordan Henderson. Now, Jordan, uh, the pair of them, fantastic talents and great lads, by the way. Both very different characters, but both fabulous lads. You know, they just are, and. Jordan, I don't know if he was under 17 at the time, I can't remember, but anyhow, he was, um, he must have been under 17, he would play. Now, Jordan, when he was an under 16, was a very slight stature, and he was one of those that was growing a little bit slower than everybody else in terms of physicality. Now. In terms of ability, always there, attitude, probably the best we've ever had, um, desire to improve, desire to be the best, desire to do everything as good as he can, you'd have to say he was number one. But there came a time when you could watch him in the games and the things he was wanting to do weren't quite happening. Everything was laboured, everything was tired. And I watched him and I thought, mm, he needs a rest now. Now, we have nowadays all these bits where they can sell, we can measure what they've run and all that lot. I don't care what, the biggest thing that doesn't lie is the eye. You can tell if someone's not quite at it. You can tell if someone's not doing their job and you can tell if someone needs to be pulled out for their own good. So it was a time when, with Jordan, we had to go, he needs a bit of help here, like needs to rest for a bit. So came through the tunnel at the academy and all the boys were in front of us. And I went, Jord, he went, what? I said, you're not playing tomorrow. And straight away, obviously, face went up like that. And understand, because he just wanted to play football. So I gave him the reasons why and explained to him about the tide. I said, I've been watching him, all that sort of stuff. And I went, Jordan, I went, I know you've got the face on with me because you're not playing. I said, I get that, and I'd be the same. I went, but you see all those boys in there, all your teammates? He went, yeah. I went, the ones that have all supported you, well, well, this is their chance to have a game. So I said, you make sure you go and support them. Never, never, he didn't come upstairs to see me like I said he could do. He just got on with it. Jordan always, always put his teammates first. Um, We had another young lad whose ability probably surpassed Jordan's in terms of natural ability, but unfortunately, for whatever reason, didn't make it as a player. And one lad I'd love to see again, and I'm, I'm not going to say his name, but one lad I will do accidentally, mate, you watch now. <laughs> um, but one lad that I would love to see again. He had probably more natural ability in the position he played than Jordan did have in his position. And unfortunately, his background and the way things worked didn't work out for him. When he was in the academy, Jordan and his family looked after this lad like he was his own brother tremendously well. And 
But that group as a whole had a great team bond, great team spirit. And that's the one of the things we try and foster as much as we can is understanding that whilst only a few individuals make it, they wouldn't have got out the rest of the way about their teammates. And I speak to lads now that, you know, it might be a lad who's a builder or something now, and I'll go, do you ever speak to so-and-so? Oh, oh, no, don't do that. Why not? Wow, he's an England player now. And I went, yeah, but he's an England player because you helped him. You're, you're one of his teammates that helped him on the way. You're one of those that, whilst you might not have got that glory, I said, you helped him on his way. So never be in you know, fear of ringing him up and saying, hello, how are you? And always be proud of what you've done to help him like that. So, like I said, they're, they're, they're both, both Jordans, fabulous lads, and, but so different characters. You know, like Pickers, I love him because he is what he is. He's a mad goalkeeper. But I think to be a goalkeeper, you've got to be touched. Mm. I really honestly do. I think you, you've got to have something about you that's very, I think you've got to be a bit, not mad, but I mean, who in the right frame of mind wants to go rushing out of someone's feet or diving in amongst it and all stuff like that. But he does it and he does it in abundance and loves it. And I, you know, I can remember coaching Jordan and we used to have a f philosophy of playing out from the back. And it'd go into either the full back, the centre back, said split, midfielder drop in. We used to have a nice pattern of play, Jed, McNamee. It all started with Quee Zamborn years ago, the Dutch way of playing, and we carried it on with the players when we could, as best we could. And we had a philosophy of it, except when Jordan played. So I'd go to Jordan, Jordan, please pass to your back four. And he used to call me Kevin. <laughs> Kevin, I'm better than them. And I used to go, yes, Jordan, I know you are, but that's how we <laughs> want to do it. And that's what he was like. But he was exceptional. I, I, and people have seen it now. Now, I was lucky enough to see it at a very young age of him. Talent with his feet was exceptional. Shot stopping, unbelievable. I used to put him in at centre-back in uh, training. And he'd go, what are you doing that for? I said, think about it. I says, as a goalkeeper, you can come and see it in front. I said, as a centre-back, you need to know what it's like for them when you coming over the top or their awareness around them. So I used to swap in another lad around in goal, like one of them going goal, and the other one play centre-back. And he used to frustrate me then because he was really good as a centre-back as well. <laughs> you see what I mean? And I used to be looking at him thinking he could play out on field. If I really had to, I'd have played him out on field and it wouldn't have bothered me doing it. Um, I think loads of them. Trevor, um, one of our other goalkeepers, he was the same. He could play out on field. There was a lot of lads who we've got through over the years that we would say to them, you need to use your feet. And they could have played out on pitch as well, like some were exceptional. But like I said, it's not just those two. Well, over the years, we've had some great lads. Now, for me, the most important thing is we're all, for me, everybody has got a talent. Now, the idea is to find that talent, nurture it and make the most of it. Mine was football to a degree, could say coaching. Everybody's got that talent. Now, some of their ability might not allow them to get to the Premier League to play for their country like those boys have done. But it might play National League, it might play non-league, whatever it is. Our job as coaches for me is to help them fulfil that potential. They've got to play their part is to help them fulfil that potential. So we have lads now playing in the National League. Am I as proud of them as what I would be of a lad playing for England? Absolutely. Why? Because they're part of our club. Mm. Can we talk a little bit about, which was my favourite time, yeah, with yeah. the, the Reedy era? Yeah. It's like, and it's a bit weird because years and years ago, I was in a taxi with a taxi driver, being on the piss, talking about football like you do with taxi drivers. Taxi driver said, he was in his 70s, and he says, best time of my life was when the Reedy era at football. 
in that time I was about 20 and I says it better not be my fucking best time in my life when I get to 70 you know what I mean because it was it was phenomenal it was such a good time to be alive like you know it was everything sort of went went right for us it was great I think, like I think what it is if I look back over my time at Sunderland the managers I've had each and every one of them have played an important part in my career um, whether it be good bad indifferent but they've all gave me an understanding of something Um and I've loved them all, to be fair. I can't really say there's any manager at Sunderland that I played under that I look back and think, what a dick or anything like that. There's no, nothing like that. Loved them all. And enjoyed playing for them as well, which is the most important thing. But obviously then it gets to the stage where we're in the position we are. Bob Murray allegedly, somebody else sneaked it out or somebody did, that it was Peter Reid and someone made a few quid out of his family. I don't know if that story is true, but all I will say, it was probably the best investment Bob Murray ever had was bringing Peter Reid to the club if he then said to me what was the best investment Peter Reid done was bringing in Bobby Saxton because Peter Reid had that personality that we needed at the time Bobby Saxton when he came in the following season had that I don't know how to explain it he was an exceptional coach taught you a massive amount about football but when people like um, the gentleman who's off can't remember his name Graham Potter's in charge at Brighton said an important thing um, looking at footballers first and foremost as people not footballers which I think is important but Sacco did he saw us as people he loved your family knew all about your family and it sounds like a cliche when the guy the manager knew all about your family and your wife's birthday I didn't really want fucking reading about my wife's <laughs> birthday but you know but if it was enough to say how's your wife how's your kids how's Luke or how's Natasha or how's Sharon or something like that I'd be going fuck oh, no. Now, I didn't expect him to do a Cluffy and send her flowers on my birthday, on her birthday, like allegedly Cluffy used to do with her players-wise. But the important thing was, Sacco did want to know about your families and he did see you as a person. And, you know, to sort of... There were a time when we were training relentlessly. I'm jumping forward and I'll go back to what you said. There was times when we were training really hard, the games were coming thick and fast, we were probably going for the championship. And when you tend to train all day, every day, it does become like a busman's holiday. The drive-in becomes a busman's holiday. The, everything about it does. And I remember some days going and training and I'd have my car on the A1 like that and I used to laugh because I'd go, right, that's the A1 to Scotland or that's the training. And I've got to be honest with you, some days I thought, I fucking just want to go that way. <laughs> now, if I'd gone off for the day somewhere, sorry, wife's curry again, if I'd gone off for the day somewhere and disappeared, because I just needed to get away, which I think everybody needs to do. And, I, and I, anybody that says, oh, that's bullshit, it's fucking rubbish. They do. Some days we just go, so I don't fancy it. Yeah. It's not us being bad people. It's just saying today, I need to do this. And sometimes I would go, yeah, fine. Now, I knew for a fact if I'd ever done that, because I chose not to, unfortunately, uh, if I'd ever chose to do that, I guarantee 100% I'd have gone in the next day and said, I could have gone, where was you yesterday? And I'd have told him, and he'd have just gone, you're all right now. Right, come on, man. That would have been it. There'd mm -hmm. have been no song and dance. There'd have been no hullabaloo about it. There'd have been no disciplinary measures. It would have been, are you okay? Oh, I can love the bloke for that. I loved everything about him, even the day that he threatened, well, he sent me in because I'll kick somebody and moaned, or someone kicked me and I moaned. He then sent me in, poked me in the chest, and I said to him, don't do it. And he said to me, do you want me to get the manager? And I said, no, and I walked in like that. <laughs> it was comical, like, but Sacco was... For me, the most important signing the club made in that era, without a shadow of a doubt, because 
Reedy had a fantastic personality, very loud, very brash. He could nail you when he wanted to. You could argue with you, but he had that about him where he had that, that, that scowl, like, you know, and I quite like that. And, you know, if someone scowls at me, I used to think, yeah, fucking come on then, I'll show you. And, and that was me. Now, some players you might not have been able to do it with, but that was the way it worked for me. But Saka was outstanding at making sure players knew their value to the team because the role I had in the team would be somebody sometimes go under the radar. You know, even nowadays people that go to me, oh, I go, they go, what's your nice old Kevin Ball? They go, oh, yeah, Kevin Ball. And they fucking start with, oh, you weren't the best footballer. And I fucking look at them like that. Now, in the past, they used to just go, oh, yeah, like that, and think, oh, what's the fucking point? Now, I don't. I educate them now. Mm-hmm. I go, what do you mean? And they do that. And I go, what do you mean I weren't the best footballer? I said, tell me what a footballer's job is. And then when I go, but I could kick with both feet. Oh, yeah, you could do that, son. I could tackle. Is that a skill? Oh, God, you could tackle. Could your head? And I'd go through six or eight, ten things. And they'd be going, waxing the And I'd go at the end of it. I said, I weren't a fucking bad footballer then, were I? <laughs> now, that's not them being horrible. It's probably them not being, well, it's not ignorant would be the word, uneducated in the sense of what each individual does for the team. Sacco always made sure everybody knew everybody's role and the importance of everybody's role to each other. Like, we would always go and celebrate if Kev Phillips scored because it's a euphoria feeling, isn't it? Sacco loved it, the fact that I might run 30 yards and tackle someone and give the ball to someone else and we go and score. They'd all be celebrating that up there. Sacco would be just looking at me and doing that. And he always, always said, oh, Kevin Phillips scores the goals. Who gets the ball for Kevin Phillips? Kevin Ball. And he would do it. And it would be his way of saying, listen, we do value what you do. Not just me, everybody. He was outstanding at it. And he was so witty with it as well. I mean, we went to Marbella at the end of one year. And we're going for the... Um, sorry, we've won the championship, 105 points. Reed is taking us to Marbella. But oh, about four days later, we had to play Liverpool in the centenary game at the Stadium of Light. So we've won the league. They're the one that's teamed up have won it the most or may have won the Prem that year I can't remember but we're playing then all I kept thinking was fucking hell we're playing Liverpool in four days time I can't go on the piss in my bar I play like a right twat so I go there and on the first night we go down to the port and everybody's absolutely steaming apart from me right I'm just not drinking thought I can't do it and then all of a sudden Mickey Gray starts working himself doesn't he right and the next thing, I think, I think his words were calling Peter Reid big ears and then he started pissing in the port like you know no different to what I'd expect from him in the sense of the day at that age. But he was funny, Mickey. Mickey is so witty and quick, it's frightening. And I think he may have called Peter Reed monkey's heed like that. Now, obviously, you're looking at the manager. You're looking at Mickey. You want to laugh, but you know you can't, right? And then Sacco stepped in and went to me, right, take him home. And I went to Sacco, what the fuck have I got to take him home for? Like that, right? He's gone, because you're the captain. I'm getting back to the hotel. And that was what he was like. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And but he he he, he just he just had a way, Sacco. He just was excellent, absolutely super. Me and uh, Michael Greer related. My dad and his granddad were brothers. Really? Uh, yeah. That's my word, man. Well, it's funny because when Mickey Gray, <coughs> like someone talks to me about the best players I've ever played with at Sunderland, and we'll talk about Mickey because if I'm really, really honest, I look at them all now. A lot of different characters. I remember watching Mickey at 16 at uh, Roker Park. Looking down, I can still remember being sat where I was. He came to the touchline, playing with a smile on his face, and I went here playing our first team, no problem. Now, 
everybody said, well, it's easy behind it. No, I said it. I said it at the time. No different to I said Jordan Henderson would play for England and Pickford. You know when they've got the edge. Mickey was an outstanding talent. He also had a party side to him. Mm. And sometimes people would say, oh, Mickey was out in Sunderland last night and Mickey was doing this and Mickey was doing that, which may have been the case. But if I could have then turned and said, yeah, Mickey was the best player in training today and Mickey was the best player in the game today, I could have done it tenfold, hundredfold. Very rarely was he not the best player in training. Very rarely was he not at the front in the running. Very rarely was he not the best at whatever we were doing. He was an exceptional talent. I probably sometimes didn't give him the credit he deserved because sometimes it could be a pain in the ass with what he'd done. But he probably, if I'm really, if someone really, really pushed me now, when I've really thought about it long and hard, I would probably say fortunate to play with Mickey Gray because he was an outstanding talent. And again, you know, like my, my family were close to his alu used to knock around with Gavi's, I think it's his nephew. Um, so we were close and I used to look after Mickey. And yes, he may have got me in trouble at times, but would that bother me? No, because that's what teammates are for. Yeah. They? Would you, the, in the season, the 105 points, would you see that was the best team spirit that you'd play, like, that well, in the Sunderland? I think time? the... Um, it's funny how team spirit and what does team spirit equate to? Does team spirit have discipline within it? Now I've thought long and hard about this because I've played with some excellent players who never bought into the team bit at all. And subsequently we suffered as a team. One of those errors was Terry Butcher when he took over as manager, bought in some really good players, but they didn't come for me with the right attitude of being a footballer at a great club. They enjoyed the lifestyle as well. I have no issue whatsoever because I think everybody, when the time's right, needs a beer. I think people in certain jobs probably need beers more than others. Mm. Some lads, their way of sorry, dealing with stress might be to have a beer. So you can't condemn them if that's their way of dealing with it. But you can have a pop at them if they're not then doing the job, if they're not then in a position to be able to do the job. And there was a time when I, we played some great players and it just didn't work. And a lot of it is because they didn't bring buy into the team spirit ethos. That can also be created by the players and the management. You may be lucky to get a blend of people that it works with. Um, if I'm honest, when people talk about me being captain, probably the best era I was captain was when I had lads around me that give a shit as much as me. Mm. That made my life a lot easier. Now, I was a bit anal with certain things about how we'd done things and I'll not hide from that and I'll never change from that because that was me. I think they all liked it because I was anal about it and I would make sure we'd done stuff and I would say, no, it's not good enough and if they didn't want to do it, I'd go, I'll go and do it because I felt we had a duty of care to our supporters in the, the community and you know we'd always make sure people were doing things they should, which is something which a club, rightly so, have connected so much better in the last few years. There was a period where we did lose that touch with the, the supporters and me personally think it's something that should never ever ever go because they are they are what we are they are us we yeah. you know we are reflective of them and what we do on the pitch is them how can I put it? I used to say this to the players how our club is seen is the way we play on the pitch and if our fans don't think we do what should they they tell us don't they yeah. um so team spirit how does it how does it nurture be fostered I do think by having enough good people within your squad and when we've done that and even the first team that won the championship the first time through with Reedy and Sacco was a bunch of lads who 
would have grafted every day, all day, would have kicked their grandmother, granddad, and anybody else that got in the way to win a game of football, but give a shit about each other. But we're also, also prepared to challenge each other, prepared to fight with each other. Now, not because I want to fight because I don't like you. Mm. I want to fight you because what you're doing is not right and not good enough and I want you to do better. And it would get in an argument. And I remember with Scotty, we had a massive argument about something outside a pub in Durham once. Like, to a degree, like, we've all got, you know, we're on a night out, all the boys. We're arguing about um, something Reedy was doing with a new physio. We wanted, I'm going to, Scotty, well, if you kept your gob shut, he would employ him, but you never tell Peter Reed what to do. What you do, you... Don't manipulate Peter Reed. You put the idea into his head. Yeah, Madam think it's his idea. There you go. See, I never even said that, but that's what he used to do. Now, Reed, he knew it was the right thing to do. You just had to let him be the one that made the decision. And I went, and Scott, you keep going and telling him. He is going, well, fuck you. Like that, I'll do when I want to do it. It's the same as when there was a time when the supporters would sing, well, Michael Bridges, because they wanted him to bring Bridges on. Mm. I used to be thinking, shut the fuck up. Because like, if you shut up, they'll bring, he'll bring uh, him on. But he uh, won't bring him on because you're telling him to. He'll do what he wants. That was Reed's character, and I loved him for that. Um, but so we'd have a riot, row, like proper. And then we'd go, right, we're going back in. I'm like, come on then. <laughs> now, I knew 100% he had my back and he, he knew I had his back. And that was a team that weren't possibly as fluent as the, the next team, one of the 105 points, but were an unbelievable team. I would pretty much say any time they played against any team, the other team would know, whoever they were would know they're in a game. And I'd fancy our chances of winning because we might not have been, maybe had as many good individuals, but as a team, we were absolutely brilliant. Now then, when we got relegated, and bearing in mind that was 40 points, and which was one of the highest ever, going to Wimbledon, getting beat last game of the season, one nil was an absolute kick in the bollocks. And I go back to what I said to you before, my daughter still says, do you remember that day, Dad, you came home that night and cried in the kitchen? I went, she went, well, what about you? So she was only really young at the time. She, went, she said, I remember you coming home she went, I remember you crying in the kitchen. I think it was when you got relegated. Now, bear in mind, she could have only been four or five. That was a night. We came home from Wimbledon, and you talk about your teammates and, you know, look after each other and the camaraderie. We were on the bus to go out a few beers, got home at whatever time, and that was it. I kept thinking, season's over, we've been relegated. What the fuck am I going to do now? And I was devastated because we'd worked so hard that year. Now, that night there, as much as your children and your wife may want to come in and say to you everything would be okay, you needed your mates. Mm -hmm. And it sounds awful to say you don't want your family. It's nothing to do with that. It's just they would understand better than your wife. If I said something about football to my wife, she'd go, oh, I like that. Now, she understands it, but not like Martin Scott would understand it or Steve Agnew or somebody like that. I found that very difficult. Now, again... You can change that to the day I went in the kitchen and started chucking the eggs about when we won the lead of 105 points. Like she still remembers that. But that night, we had a lovely do at the stadium. You know, we've won the league 105 points and everybody's laughing. I'm absolutely buzzing and I'll tell you why in a minute. And that night, we went out with the wives for a bit and I remember saying to her, do you mind if I go out the lads now? And I, she probably thought, you wanker, all year I've been there for you and on mm. the night that I want to go out for you, you want to go out the lads. And it wasn't nothing to do with that. It was just the fact that for that night, I just wanted to be with them. And it's weird, mm. but I did. You know, like my brother came up, not that time, the first time when we was in the town. And um, what's the name of the pub there we used to go in in the town? I'm not very good. I remember going in there. What is it on the corner there? I can't remember what's it called. I can't remember what it's called. Anyhow, someone told me the name, so I go, oh, that's it. Like, I can't remember. 
And I remember standing behind the bar, just watching our lads with the fans enjoy themselves. And my brother was up and the fans had got him on their shoulders. And all I kept remembering was one of those things going round and mm. round, you know, like that. And, and I kept thinking, thing going, I'm, looking, I'm thinking, for fuck's sake, get him down like that. His head's <laughs> going to come off in a minute like that. Um, but that period of time, I still maintain the, it, it was, it transpired down from the standards they set from the top. Mm. And the fact was, not just the standards they set in sense of discipline and that, caring for the club. I remember Bobby Saxton, he'd, he'd recognised that it was a hard time. We'd be, maybe as we know, we've had games, we're tired, the boys are tired. But he'd know it affected the staff as well because it does have an effect. I don't give a shit what anybody says. I don't realise the effect that a team's win or lose can have on the club as a whole. Mm. He did. And I remember him, say we had a weekend, we never had a game. We'd work really hard and then all of a sudden it literally, now it's a lot easier in them days, not like it is nowadays, clubs have such a vast staff in now. He would go, right, that's it, off now. And he would kick every member of staff out of Charlie Early, right, on, on the Wednesday and, and no one's back in till Monday. And all the staff, not just the, the player, be all the non-playing staff, the groundsmen, whoever could do he would just say, I don't want to see anybody. I'm going to close the, the training ground up. I don't think he realised what he would have done because that's why he'd done it. But <laughs> what a great thing he was doing because we all then went home on the Wednesday, Thursday, sorry, for the, so we had Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Now, on the Thursday, we're buzzing, we're not training. You might have a few beers on the Friday or maybe even the Saturday. By the Sunday, you fucking cannot wait to get back in on Monday. And by Monday, you were rocking to get back in. He was outstanding at knowing how to deal, not just with the playing staff, but all the support staff who were so important to us. Mm. And it was it was a great time. Like I said, the 105 points, I can remember we won it with four or five games to go. And I kept thinking, right, we're not going to lose a game now. And my reasoning for that, the first time we won it, a few years before that, we lost to Tramir on the last game and we were away and I think it was Magaluf. And I can remember some supporters giving us dog's abuse because we'd lost the last game against Tramir. Mm. I, I blame Mickey Bridges because I think he missed loads of chances. <laughs> but they gave us dogs. And I could understand that because they were disappointed we lost the last game of the season when everyone's gone down they wanted a win and all that lot. But it really rankled with me and I never forgot it. So, of course, you then go through what you do with the playoff and that. So when we got to the stage where, you know, a few years later, you know, we've won the league with four or five games to go, all I kept thinking was, right, we're not going to get beat now. And that was my mantra for the rest of that season as captain was to drive us on to make sure we didn't get beat again. And that was a time when me and Bobby had an argument because Nicky Summerby kicked me in training. I went to Bobby, that's a fucking foul, isn't it? Like that. And he stopped training. He went, I beg your pardon? I went, it's a foul. A fucking foul. You've kicked fuck out of these lads all year <laughs> and you now want to foul off of one of them. Get in, he went. I went, no. So that's when he poked me in the chest. I went, Saka, don't poke me in the chest. He went, Kevin. He used to call me Kevin. Do you want me to get the Sunday? Yeah, yeah, it was like, <laughs> do you want me to get the manager? I went, no, I don't. And I went in and I was mortified because I thought I'd upset Sacco, right? Again, learning. The one person, not just the one, but the main person that was at it was, as captain was me. I was still fucking training like a lunatic. A few of the boys had took their foot off the gas and were cruising through training. And Sacco's way of dealing with it was now the top man, which was me. And he did, but I was mortified. I ended up, going over about 100 yards of training, doing sit-ups, press-ups, like a lunatic, going in there, knocking on his door late, and going, what have I done to upset you? Kevin. And then he'd sit me down and explain what he'd done. And I just came out there thinking, fucking what a man. Yeah, I was just about to say, what a man management, man. That's oh, outstanding. superb, isn't it? I, I, it was brilliant. Um, can't speak, I swear, yeah, we didn't get beaten that last game. And that's how 
as again, as a captain, I was so satisfied, not with me driving it on, but that the boys had finished the season without getting beaten. I thought, no matter where we go, no, we going to get fucking moaned out. Oh, because we yeah. won the last game of the season. I can even remember losing Steve McManaman at Liverpool in a game, and we, he scored. I think it was a League Cup, we got beat 1-0. And I was marking Steve McManaman, I was doing a man-to-man job on him. And I lost him. I, I partly blamed Darius Kubitschke, but it was ultimately my fault. And he was shouting at me from the sideline, Saka, and I gave him the rubbery, and I wouldn't look like that. Like, I fucking wouldn't, because I knew <laughs> what he was going to do, right? So, bear in mind, captain of the club, and I'm thinking, I'm fucking look like he's going to nail me, because I could hear him, like that. And then it was Kevin, you know. I'm fucking not looking. And after, he never spoke to me. So, fuck, have I got away with that? And I thought, no, nah. so anyhow, went on for a few weeks, right? And then all of a sudden, I think we'd gone down to... Grimsby, I've got to get this bit right. Gone at Grimsby, we'd won the game, whatever the scores. I scored, Bridgie scored. I got man, twice. I scored. Got man of the match. I had a massive row with Reedy, massive row at half time because he said something I didn't agree with. So bearing in mind now, I've fucking scored. I've had a massive row with the manager. I think I made two goals second half. It might have been it. Got man of the match. All I want to do is have a fight with. The gaffer, because he pissed me right off, and he did as well. But he he boxed that off brilliantly after the game, like proper good man management, really. And then we went went down to Manchester, and uh, we were all out in this club in Manchester or a nightclub. My mate had come over from America, and he was in a group called Bad Company, so he was a top top rock singer, like lead singer of Bad Co in the day. So he had come up to Manchester to see us. So and they were out in this dance and we we're having a go, and then Sacco started talking about the Grimsby game we'd had on the afternoon, and I remember going to Sacco. Sacco, I went. Put the ball away. The lads are out having a good time. Well, I couldn't have said... I might as well have just shit in his mouth because I couldn't have said <laughs> anything worse to him because he went, I beg your pardon? So he then, oh, fucking the footballer now, are you? And went all through that. But the best bit was, and then all of a sudden he went, and anyhow, where the fuck were you when McManaman scored? <laughs> it was like, I'm just waiting for this moment. But as a bloke, loved him. Well, I love him. I think he's great. He's rung me a couple of times. I need to get back to him. He's absolutely, by far and away... And I've met some fantastic people in football, but to influence my career, both whether it be coaching, football, just as a person, it was him. And everybody I've spoke to prior to coming here, the words that people spoke about him, you know, talk about holding in high esteem or above high esteem, loved him. Do you... Um... Talk too much, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen him, he was at a, a talk in that I went there with Kevin Phillips and now Quinn. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he's funny because when he starts, he doesn't stop. And the best bit is when he gets the year wrong and you're sitting there thinking, sucker, it's the wrong fucking year. But you don't tell him because you don't want to get the <laughs> no, wrong no. off like that. No. No. Kevin, yeah. do you? No, no, definitely not like that. No. <laughs> so where do you see us going now then? Because obviously the news has come out today, that the new investment. Yep. So hopefully, new manager, new investment, hopefully things will start picking up. I mean, not that I was against uh, Jack Ross, Things no. just weren't happening, you know. I was a decent bloke. It's funny. But, I, I rang him tonight because I'm opening uh, the for a coffee and that. And I have to say, um, loved him. Like as a bloke, thought he was was brilliant. Uh, very articulate, very well spoken, very thoughtful about what he said, very thoughtful about what he'd done. Um, desperately wanted us to be successful. Um, put his life and soul into it, and I don't think he could ever, ever, ever. Not critical or question that, 
But unfortunately, when results don't go your way, decisions have to be made and we have to accept and understand those decisions. Whether or not we may agree or disagree with it, we have to accept that because ultimately those in the position of power make a decision they feel is the right one for the good of the great, which is the club. Mm. Now, with obviously Jack leaving and I think he's gone away with holding his head he's at highest, not high, so high and with such great esteem by everybody at the club, but then we have to replace him. And Phil Parks and Steve Park are the two people that know this league inside out, very down to earth, very hard working. I've known Phil, obviously, all my playing career, worked, done stuff with him since as a, when I worked on the loan side with the club. When I was the under-21 coach, we loaned players out to him at Bradford, loaned players out to him at other clubs. As a bloke, absolutely brilliant. Very, very football orientated, but very down to earth. No, what I would class as, not, not airs and graces, I don't mean that to be detrimental to him, but or derogatory to him, but just a normal, natural bloke who will will want us to be successful and Park is exactly the same. They're very, very down to earth. They understand you know, the size of the club. They understand the importance of getting promoted and they understand how much the club means to the city. So from that point of view, you just want them to be successful. And I've no doubt if you ask Jack Ross the same thing, he would say exactly the same because he's loved it here and I, he knows for his education as a manager going forward, this club will win a been of paramount importance to him because he would have learnt so much while he's here and like I said fabulous bloke and I can't wait to see him uh, to have a bit of crap with him and that now the investments come in um, obviously you know it's common news now they've sort of intimated where it may be uh, spent I've read an article that Charlie's wrote to this afternoon the biggest thing is whenever you get any form of investment is making sure if and when you spend it, it's spent in the right areas. Because I think every football club will say, oh, yeah, we've got loads of money, we've got loads of money to spend. If you don't spend it in the right areas in the right way or at the right time, all of a sudden it's gone. Now, no one knows what that investment is at that moment in time. I don't think it's actually been publicised what it is, so we have no idea how much it is. They've said about... The, the wonderful world of Twitter said 12 million quid, but I don't know where they get well, this money Well, so there you go. So I have no idea. So if, say, it was 12 million and they say they want to improve, allegedly, the, the scouting structure with Tony Coton, again, if we are going to, you know, improve that, is it in this country? Is it in countries that will be beneficial to us as a club? I think we have to be important to understand that, you know, sometimes it takes a certain style of player at a club certain style of character so are they thinking about where they're gonna or how much they can afford so where are they gonna go into to to sort of say well we could afford players from this country um so that's the recruitment side they, you know the academy there's areas of the academy that needs updating you know it needs tidying up um it's very well kept the people up there um on that side work tremendously hard to keep it in tip-top condition but they need help with that as well you know be areas that need redecorating revamping redoing and you can leave that and something that might cost you X amount now, if you carry on leaving it, it'll cost you 10 times that in a year's time or so. So I think it's important you keep on top of that. I think one of the important things is was they were talking about a new fan sort of engagement thing. I'm not quite sure what that is myself, so I'm quite looking forward to hearing about that. You know, are they going to invest in players? Are we going to buy any players in the January window? Will it help in that? It'll be nice and interesting when it's sort of ironed out a little bit more where the money may be invested or if they don't feel it needs to be invested in certain areas at the moment there's nothing wrong with it staying in the bank until the right time comes along because the one thing we don't want to do 
spend it because it's there. No. It needs to be invested wisely. And we need to invest it in areas we know need improvement. You know, the academy, they may be improving, improving the staff in, within the academy. You know, maybe they may improve it in recruitment with the academy. Lots of different areas. But I think the most important thing is when the decision's made where it goes, is that every bit of that money is ring-fenced for the right reasons and not just sent, spent willy-nilly. Because if we do that willy-nilly, all of a sudden that money be gone and that'd be the last thing we want. Mm-hmm. Right, mate, that's it. Thank you very much. I do talk, don't I? No, man, honestly, it's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much for coming in. Um, At the end, we normally play a song. You're not going to hear it now, but have you got any things that might spring to mind? Do you want to be a surprise? No, no, I'll tell you what. One of the songs that, that, I mean... Funny, you know, like the specials. Yeah, I love well, the specials. Well, you know, the one, special. um, this town. What is it yeah. called? Ghost Town. Ghost Town, right now. I remember that. This town. It was about <laughs> Coventry as well. Uh, that, like, um, I like that one because I was a skinhead when I was younger. Uh, but the funniest thing was um, when I think I was maybe fourteen. I was a skinhead, fifteen, may have been, and the specials came to Hastings and they were playing on the pier. So we all got our tickets, I think they may be four quid at a time. But the ticket itself was a sort of like a bus ticket for some reason, exactly the same as a bus ticket in Hastings. And I had my jean jacket on. And I remember going home the, on the day of it before I was going back out that night and I was emptying my pockets and I thought it was a bus ticket. I only threw away the oh, ticket to the no, gig. Yeah. So all of a sudden I think, what the fuck am I going to do now? So under Hastings Pier, you could literally, there's girders like everything running the length of the Hastings Pier. So what we've done, me and a couple of other lads, I mean, it's freaking ridiculous what we've done, 15. We got on the girders and just moved, uh, walked all the way along. The girder, by the way, was that wide, but we fucking got there. Then there was a trap door where lads who had kept their tickets were. So they waited because you couldn't get past the entrance if you didn't have a ticket. We'd tap on the door, they'd open it, and we came up from underneath. <laughs> and then they used to put a print on your hand. So what we'd done, they'd take your ticket, put a print on your hand, all you've done was that oh, so when they've done the infrared oh, oh is it infrared that's what oh, it they just shine yeah, yeah, yeah. so they've done that so in the end we got into the gig and it was who was there it was the specials Dex's Midnight Runners and the Go-Go Girls I think God. now obviously years later I'll go to Coventry and that song there is probably indicative of that era at uh. Coventry now I'm not saying Coventry now is not a fantastic city it may be I haven't spent any time there but at that moment in time I found it intensely tough. We we lived in a hostel. There was loads of us together in there. And the lads, again, were great. And I still speak to some of them now. Um, but it was tough. You know, like reading this letter that I sent to me miss the other day, there was a winger called Andy Willock. And me and him clashed. He was a little Scottish lad, excellent player. But we clashed for some reason. And I remember putting in the letter, oh, he'd been into my room and messed my bed up so I've been down and I've, as I'm reading I'm thinking I hope I didn't fucking stove his head and I forgot about <laughs> it and it went so I'd done it to him we he was a brilliant lad but I can still remember my first day when I signed actually there I've been training there a lot but actual first day after signing I was playing left back he was playing right wing and he cut inside I went to stop him and he nutmegged me so I turned the spin to try and stop him again and he nutmegged me again and ran off laughing and scored. And I remember thinking, that's why I fucking hate you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like that. Um, but anyhow, so Coventry at the time was a tough one. I think the highlight was going up the shop at the top of the road. And when you go in the shop, you'd buy your stuff. And as you came out, 
there's a lady of the night opposite used to be in a window and we just used to look at her and go back to the dicks like that. Yeah. So tough times like. But again, it's something that if you don't go through and don't experience, it can, you know, when they talk about the experience makes you better. It did me because I would never speak ill of it. I just found it very, very tough there and didn't like it. But I can't say it wasn't one of the best things that ever happened to me because really it was a basis for me being where I am today. Yeah, well, that's I think that's the, the basis for if things happen to you and it's a learning experience, isn't cool. it? I think and the the best that's the best way to get through life. And absolutely, yeah. You know, you make mistakes. People make mistakes all the time. Yeah, you know, but then if you learn from them, that's all right. Well, you I know? think that's probably the. I best think thing. if you gone through life, make mistakes and not learn from them, yeah, that that's not a good a thing. Like. Give then, doesn't <laughs> it? Right, yeah. But that's probably saying seeing mistake as a learning opportunity. Probably one of the best things you could say, and that for me was what it was, and. I'll forever be grateful for Coventry giving me a start and uh, Peter Sillett, Hastings and John when I went there and Bert Edwards and, and I can still remember Frieda and Ron and people like that. All of these people that give you that start, whilst it might not have worked out for you, it was that start you needed. It was that understanding. It was that like, this is what it's going to be like, your choice now. And some days, and bless them, most of those, I think with Peter's, John's still alive, I still speak to his lad now. Is never getting that opportunity to just say thank you. So always, when you do get the opportunity, just say thank you. Well, I'm going to say thank you for coming in, Thank you too. Be brilliant. And you too. Thank you. Q Ghost Town. Thanks for that. It's brilliant.